Book Three, Chapter Eight of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. The Woman's Revolution, Chapter Eight. For months before my return to England from my American lecture tour, the Ulster situation had been increasingly serious. Sir Edward Carson and his followers had declared that if home rule government should be created and set up in Dublin, they would, law or no law, establish a rival and independent government in Ulster. It was known that arms and ammunition were being shipped to Ireland, and that men, and women too for that matter, were drilling and otherwise getting ready for civil war. The WSPU approached Sir Edward Carson and asked him if the proposed Ulster government would give equal voting rights to women. We frankly declared that in case the Ulster men alone were to have the vote, that we should deal with King Carson and his colleagues exactly in the same manner that we had adopted towards the British government centered at Westminster. Sir Edward Carson at first promised us that the rebel Ulster government, should it come into existence, would give votes to Ulster women. This pledge was later repudiated, and in the early winter months of 1914 militancy appeared in Ulster. It had been raging in Scotland for some time, and now the imprisoned suffragettes in that country were being forcibly fed as in England. The answer to this was, of course, more militancy. The ancient Scottish church of Whitekirk, a relic of pre-Reformation days, was destroyed by fire. Several unoccupied country houses were also burned. It was about this time, February 1914, that I undertook a series of meetings outside London, the first of which was to be held in Glasgow, in the St. Andrew's Hall, which holds many thousands of people. In order that I might be free on the night of the meeting, I left London unknown to the police in a motor-car. In spite of all efforts to apprehend me, I succeeded in reaching Glasgow and in getting to the platform of St. Andrew's, where I found myself face to face with an enormous and manifestly sympathetic audience. As it was suspected that the police might rush the platform, plans had been made to offer resistance, and the bodyguard was present in force. My speech was one of the shortest I have ever made. I said, I have kept my promise, and in spite of His Majesty's government, I am here tonight. Very few people in this audience, very few people in this country, know how much of the nation's money is being spent to silence women. But the wit and ingenuity of women is overcoming the power and money of the British government. It is well that we should have this meeting tonight, because today is a memorable day in the annuals of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Today in the House of Commons has been witnessed the triumph of militancy, men's militancy, and tonight I hope to make it clear to the people in this meeting that if there is any distinction to be drawn at all between militancy in Ulster and the militancy of women, it is all to the advantage of the women. Our greatest task in this women's movement is to prove that we are human beings like men, and every stage of our fight is forcing home that very difficult lesson into the minds of men, and especially into the minds of politicians. I propose tonight at this political meeting to have a text. Texts are usually given from pulpits, but perhaps you will forgive me if I have a text tonight. My text is, Equal justice for men and women, equal political justice, equal legal justice, equal industrial justice, and equal social justice. I want as clearly and as briefly as I can to make it clear to you tonight that if it is justifiable to fight for common, ordinary, equal justice, then women have ample justification, nay, have greater justification, for revolution and rebellion than ever men have had in the whole history of the human race. Now that is a big contention to make, but I am going to prove it. You get the proof of the political injustice. As I finished the word injustice, a steward uttered a warning shout. There was a tramp of heavy feet, and a large body of police burst into the hall, and rushed up to the platform, drawing their truncheons as they ran. Headed by detectives from Scotland Yard, they surged in on all sides, but as the foremost members attempted to storm the platform, they were met by a fusillade of flower-pots, tables, chairs, and other missiles. 
they seized the platform railing in order to tear it down but they found that under the decorations barbed wires were concealed this gave them pause for a moment meanwhile more of the invading host came from other directions the bodyguard and members of the audience vigorously repelled the attack wielding clubs batons poles planks or anything else they could seize while the police laid out about right and left with their batons their violence being far the greater men and women were seen on all sides with blood streaming down their faces and there were cries for a doctor in the middle of the struggle several revolver shots rang out and the woman who was firing the revolver which i should explain was loaded with blank cartridges only was able to terrorize and keep at bay a whole body of police i had been surrounded by members of the bodyguard who hurried me toward the stairs from the platform the police however overtook us and in spite of the resistance of the bodyguard they seized me and dragged me down the narrow stair at the back of the call there a cab was waiting i was pushed violently into it and thrown on the floor the seats being occupied by as many constables as could crowd inside the meeting was left in a state of tremendous turmoil and the people of glasgow who were present expressed their sense of outrage at the behavior of the police who acting under government's instructions had disgraced the city general drummond who was present on the platform took hold of the situation and delivered a rousing speech in which she exhorted the audience to make the government feel the force of their indignation i was kept in the glasgow police cells all night and the next morning was taken a hunger and thirst striking prisoner to holloway where i remained for five memorable days this was the seventh attempt the government had made to make me serve a three years term of penal servitude on a conspiracy charge in connection with the blowing up of mr lloyd george's country house in the eleven and a half months since i had received that sentence i had spent just thirty days in prison on march fourteenth i was again released still suffering severely not only from hunger and thirst strikes but from injuries received at the time of my brutal arrest in glasgow the answer to that arrest had been swift and strong in bristol the scene of great riots and destruction when men were fighting for votes a large timber yard was burnt in scotland a mansion was destroyed by fire a milder protest consisted of a raid upon the house of the home secretary in the course of which eighteen windows were broken the greatest and most startling of all protests hitherto made was the attack at this time on the rokeby venus in the national gallery mary richardson the young woman who carried out this protest is possessed of a very fine artistic sense and nothing but the most compelling sense of duty would have moved her to the deed miss richardson being placed on trial made a moving address to the court in the course of which she said that her act was premeditated and that she had thought it over very seriously before it was undertaken she added i've been a student of art and i suppose care as much for art as any one who was in the gallery when i made my protest but i care more for justice than i do for art and i firmly believe that when a nation shuts its eyes to justice and prefers to have women who are fighting for justice ill-treated maltreated and tortured that such action as mine should be understandable i don't say excusable but it should be understood i should like to point out that the outrage which the government has committed upon mrs pankhurst is an ultimatum of outrages it is murder slow murder and premeditated murder that is how i have looked at it how you can hold women up to ridicule and contempt and put them in prison and yet say nothing to the government for murdering people i cannot understand the fact is that the nation is either dead or asleep in my opinion there is undoubted evidence that the nation is dead because women have knocked in vain at the door of administrators archbishops and even the king himself the government have closed all doors to us and remember this a state of death in a nation as well as in an individual leads to one thing and that is dissolution i do not hesitate to say that if the men of the country do not at this eleventh hour put their hand out and save mrs pankhurst before a few more years are past they will stretch out their hand in vain to save the empire 
in sentencing miss richardson to six months imprisonment the magistrate said regretfully that if she had smashed a window instead of an art treasure he could have given her a maximum sentence of eighteen months which illustrates i think one more queer anomaly of the english law a few weeks later another famous painting the sergeant portrait of henry james was attacked by a suffragette who like miss richardson was sent through the farce of a trial and a prison sentence which she did not serve by this time practically all the picture galleries and other public galleries and museums had been closed to the public the suffragettes had succeeded in large measure in making england unattractive to tourists and hence unprofitable to the world of business as we had anticipated the reaction against the liberal government began to manifest itself questions were asked daily in the press in the house of commons everywhere as to the responsibility of the government in the suffragette activities people began to place that responsibility where it belonged at the doors of the government rather than at our own especially did the public begin to contrast the treatment meted out to the rebel women with that accorded to the rebel men of ulster for a whole year the government had been attacking the women's right of free speech by their refusal to allow the wspu to hold public meetings in hyde park the excuse given for this was that we advocated and defended a militant policy but the government permitted the ulster militants to advocate their war policy in hyde park and we determined that with or without the government's permission we should on the day of the ulster meeting hold a suffrage meeting in hyde park general drummond was announced as the chief speaker at this meeting and when the day came militant ulster men and militant women assembled in hyde park the militant men were allowed to speak in defense of bloodshed but general drummond was arrested before she had uttered more than a few words another proof that the government had a law of leniency for militant men and a law of persecution for militant women was shown at this time by the case of miss dorothy evans our organizer in ulster she and another suffragette miss maud Meer, were arrested in belfast charged with having in their possession a quantity of explosives it was well known that there were houses in belfast that secreted tons of gunpowder and ammunition for the use of the rebels against home rule but none of those houses were entered and searched by the police the authorities reserved their energies in this direction for the headquarters of the militant women naturally enough the two suffrage prisoners on being arraigned in court refused to be tried unless the government proceeded also against the men rebels the prisoners throughout the proceedings kept up such a disturbance that the trial could not properly go on when the case was called miss evans rose and protested loudly saying i deny your jurisdiction entirely until there are in the dock beside us men who are well-known leaders of the ulster militant movement miss muir joined miss evans in her protest and both women were dragged from the court after an hour's adjournment the trial was resumed but the women again began to speak and the case was hurried through in the midst of indescribable din and commotion the women were sent to prison on remand and after a four days hunger and thirst strike were released unconditionally the result of this case was a severe outbreak of militancy three fires destroying belfast mansions within a few days fires blazed almost daily throughout england a very important instance being the destruction of the bath hotel and felixstowe valued at thirty five thousand pounds the two women responsible for this were afterwards arrested and as their trials were delayed they were although unconvicted prisoners tortured by forcible feeding for several months this occurred in april a few weeks before the day appointed for our deputation to the king i had appointed may twenty first for the deputation in spite of the fact that the king had through his ministers refused to receive us replying to this i had written again directly to the king that we utterly denied the constitutional right of ministers who not being elected by women were not responsible to them to stand between ourselves and the throne and to prevent us from having an audience of his majesty i declared further that we would on the date announced present ourselves at the gates of buckingham palace to demand an interview following the despatch of this letter my life was made as uncomfortable and as insecure as a government through their police department could contrive
I was not allowed to make public appearance, but I addressed several huge meetings from the balcony of houses where I had taken refuge. These were all publicly announced, and each time the police, mingling with crowds, made strenuous efforts to arrest me. By strategy, and through the valiant efforts of the bodyguard, I was able each time to make my speech and afterwards to escape from the house. All of these occasions were marked by fierce opposition from the police and splendid courage and resistance on the part of the women. The deputation to the king was, of course, marked by the government as an occasion on which I could be arrested, and when, on the day appointed, I led the great deputation of women to the gates of Buckingham Palace, an army of several thousand police were sent out against us. The conduct of the police showed plainly that they had been instructed to repeat the tactics of Black Friday, described in an earlier chapter. Indeed, the violence, brutality, and insult of Black Friday were excelled on this day, and at the gates of the King of England I myself did not suffer so greatly as others, because I had advanced toward the palace unnoticed by the police, who were looking for me at a more distant point. When I arrived at the gates I was recognized by an inspector who at once seized me bodily and conveyed me to Holloway. Before the deputation had gone forth I had made a short speech to them, warning them of what might happen, and my final message was, Whatever happens, do not turn back. They did not, and in spite of all the violence inflicted upon them, they went forward, resolved, so long as they were free, not to give up the attempt to reach the palace. Many arrests were made, and of those arrested many were sent to prison. Although for the majority this was the first imprisonment, these brave women adopted the hunger strike and passed seven or eight days without food and water before they were released, weak and ill as may be supposed. End of Book 3 Chapter 8